Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, Canada is planning to significantly ramp up its immigration levels in the coming years, but some experts are worried about the potential effects. What are the problems with the immigration targets? Well, we'll discuss that. Five out of six Canadians believe the country is already in a recession. No wonder we're all grumpy. And we analyze the week in provincial and federal politics with John Best, the publisher of the Bay Observer. And south of the border, a special counsel has been appointed to investigate the discovery of classified documents found in Joe Biden's home. Get the lowdown on that as well. It's all coming up in the Bill Kelly podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. We've talked about uh, the economy and the economic problems, of course, as we start economic recovery after the pandemic. And uh, the fact that we can't seem to find enough people to fill many of the vacancies in many industries is problematic. And I think there's general consensus in most circles that immigration has to be at least part of that solution. And Canada is planning to significantly ramp up its immigration levels in the coming years. But there are some policy experts that are worried about the potential effects on things like health care, housing, and, of course, the labor market. Well, during an interview with the Canadian Press, Immigration Minister Sean Fraser defended his plan and said increasing immigration will help Canadians address the labor shortages, as well as the demographic challenges that we're facing, too. Here's the minister. We still have a million jobs that are are open in the economy that need to be filled. And we have long-term skills gaps that need to be filled that we cannot fill in this economic context with a domestic labor source by training more people or engaging more people in the economy. Though we need to do that too. Um, if we're going to fill the gaps in the short term in the economy and the skills gaps in the long term, we need to welcome more people with skills that are going to be in demand for the next generation. Sounds reasonable, doesn't it? And you'd think that everybody should be on side, but there is still some trepidation in some circles. And there's an op-ed piece in theconversation.com that uh, addresses this. Uh, It's entitled, The Problem with Immigration Targets. They're guesstimates easily misunderstood by the public. The author of the piece is uh, Dr. Jennifer Elric, who is an associate professor of sociology at McGill University. Uh, Professor, thank you so much for the time. It's a pleasure to have you with us today. Oh, thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. Even even somebody, I think, with just a basic understanding of economics understands that, look, if we don't have enough skilled people here to fill these positions, yes, we should bring them in. That's We've been doing that since, so, well, 1867, really, uh, and it's worked pretty well for us. But why why is there still some, some resistance to doing it once again and where the need seems to be here? Well, I think it's it's complicated because, uh, you know, we're in an anxious moment right now. I think people are rightly anxious about the state of our public services uh, especially healthcare, housing, other social services. And so when these calculations, which you know have a lot of nuance um, and are backed up by a lot of data and analysis within uh, ministries, when these, these estimates and targets leave the policymaking arena and enter the public, the public sees a big number and they see a big number um, of people potentially coming in and adding to the challenges um, that we're facing. Although, you know, I have to say, you know, I would only underline what uh, what uh, the minister said in the clip that you played and uh, even be more specific in terms of these industries that people are, are uh, concerned about right now. You know, if we're if we're looking at immigration, immigration is actually part of the solution right now in healthcare. Um, you, you look at the statistics um, they make up a significant number of our critical workers. Um, I want to throw a few of those numbers at you, if you, if I, if you don't mind. Sure, yeah. Um, 37% of our pharmacists are immigrants. Same as 36% of physicians, almost 40% of dentists, almost 25% of registered nurses, 
and 35% of nurses' aides. That means immigrants make up between uh, a quarter to 40% of all types of critical workers in our healthcare system right now. So the essence here seems to be when, as you say, we see these guesstimates uh, and the numbers that come out from from various government agencies. Uh, you're right. It's a big number. and It seems to scare us. You know, we've got a housing problem in this, this country right now. We say you're going to bring in 500,000 more people, but it's not how many are coming in. It's who they are that we should be focusing on, isn't it? Um, it is who they are, but it's also the fact that we shouldn't be focusing on immigration if our real problems are in healthcare, housing, and uh, social policy. Um, that's that's one of the things I wanted to get across in, in writing this article is that, you know, I think I understand the, the human impulse to see a large number and, and feel anxious. Um, but what I would like to see happen is, you know, when, when we hear politicians talk about immigration numbers, you know, I would like to to, to have people say, well, um, okay, you know, these are high numbers, uh, but I'd like them to know that, uh, you know, these high numbers in, in proportion to the Canadian population are actually not that high. They've been relatively constant for several decades. So it's not immigration policy in terms of immigrant intake that's been changing. Um, and I urge people to ask, what has been changing uh, in other policy arenas over the past several decades? Um, because the real problem, in my opinion, is not immigration policy, but long-term policy decisions um, in, uh, you know, in healthcare, in housing, in social services that affect uh, the supply of those, of those services. Um, since the 1990s, the federal and provincial governments have been downsizing the welfare state that we set up earlier in the 20th century. Uh, they've been uh, following a fiscal agenda of reducing spending to control deficits. This has hit hard in education, health, and welfare. They've also been doing a lot of restructuring in these areas. And so if we're really concerned about things like healthcare and housing, I think we should be looking more at healthcare and housing policy um, instead of seeing immigration as the problem. Well, in healthcare, I guess, is a classic example of that, isn't it, Professor? Uh, you know, when, when our healthcare system actually got off the ground back in the mid-1960s, and, and for years after that, I, we pretty much prided ourselves as we've got the best healthcare delivery in the world. And that may or may not have been true, but that seemed to be the mindset. We're nowhere near the top of the list now. And I think we know that. Uh, and I, you're absolutely right. We have to ask ourselves, what's happened? What what have we not done or what have we done that's that's actually harmed the system right now? And I don't know if uh, if we're asking of our public officials those, those difficult questions. No, I agree. I agree. But but we, we can. I mean, there's there's a there's, there's there is a temptation to to say, you know, well, you know, we have these these big numbers coming in. Uh, maybe we should at least stop or reduce these numbers uh, in order not to make things worse. But uh, actually, I think, uh, you know, solving healthcare problems with immigration policy in, in terms of reduction would actually make things worse, um, not just because, as I mentioned, a uh, substantial number of our healthcare workers are immigrants. Um, oh, and by the way, uh, you know, we have many more immigrants already in the country um, who could work in the healthcare system, but who are held up by our credential recognition uh, process. Um, the latest statistics show that uh, a little over 35% of uh, foreign trained nurses work in that field. You know, that's, uh, we have 70, you know, th that leaves 70% who are here and trained and not working in the field. Um, you know, 41% of foreign trained doctors um, are actually working as physicians. So, you know, if we are going to make changes to immigration policy in order to respond to issues in healthcare, um, you know, it shouldn't be at the level of intake, but at the level of credential recognition.
and and that's something that politicians have to get their heads around at the same time, and as well as some of those organizations about qualifications and and certification for these sorts of things. Because you you know we we just talked about healthcare, but there's so many other disciplines that uh, in you know architects. I mean, you go down the list uh, of people that could and should be contributing, but they're not being allowed to because of, of basically the, the the politics and the red tape that are involved. Absolutely, absolutely. And so, if if we start, you know, cutting numbers uh, in the belief that uh, that this is uh, that you know immigrant in, in, intake is what is causing or exacerbating um, you know shortages in our public services, um, then we'll not only lose some of the critical workers that we desperately need, um, not and not get more of them, but actually on a broader level, you know, we're also going to you know, lose uh, some of the tax base that is funding these public services. Um, I mean, people forget easily that, um, you know, Canada has a, you know, an aging population and low fertility. Um, Immigration currently accounts for 75% of our population growth. It's going to be 100% by uh, 2032. And immigration is completely responsible for our labor force growth right now. So if we reduce immigration, we're going to have even fewer workers paying taxes that fund our public services, including, you know, the elder care that we're going to need for our rapidly uh, aging population. Are you, are you confident that, that we get that now? We understand the, the, the situation here and, and we're looking at this as part of the solution? Uh, because as you mentioned in the piece, we, we, there are still some people that have to overcome this this myth that's out there is that immigrants are a drag on the on the economy when just the opposite is the is the actual case i agree well um you know i think we don't we don't do a very good job i think of of educating people about our immigration system uh, perhaps i have to level that critique at people in my own profession um it's a complicated system and you know when when governments uh set targets uh, there are a lot of considerations, careful analyses uh, that go into coming up with a number. It's not an exact science. It never has been. Um, but there is a lot of research into, you know, who are immigrants, you know, what factors affect how well they do in the economy, how different types of, of immigrants do, uh, but not also, not just economically, also socially. So there are a lot of thoughts that go into this. And those kind of analyses um, aren't often shared with the public. Um, and so I think it's, it's a problem when, you know, the results of these analyses and thoughts enter the public arena in the form of a big number, um, but people are not really given the tools or access to the information behind that number to really get a better understanding of, of what it could mean. Exactly. Dr. Jennifer Elwerk uh, from uh, McGill University. Doctor, thank you so much for the time. It was a pleasure talking with you today. Thank you. It was my pleasure. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Are you optimistic about your own personal economic situation as we head into 2023? If you are, you may well be in the minority. It appears a lot of Canadians aren't feeling very optimistic at all these days about their financial situation. Global Sandy Salerno has details. According to this poll, over 8 in 10 Canadians feel the economy is actually in a recession right now and over half feel things won't improve at all this year. When people look at their personal finances, they're not feeling so hopeful there either. 38% say they're losing ground. Half of those asked expect their household income will fall behind the cost of living this year. Now, the biggest
largest expense driving this is the cost of food, with 46% saying it's a major source of stress. 34% say it's housing expenses that do it. One thing Canadians don't appear to be as concerned about is the job market. Only 20% feel it's likely they or a family member will lose their job this year, and that's the lowest level recorded since 2008. Sandy Salerno, Global News. So it's a, a kind of a glum outlook, at least according to many of the people that answered the survey. That survey that Sandy was referring to, of course, uh, was done by our good friends at uh, Polaris Strategy, Strategic Insights. Uh, Dan Arnold is the Chief Strategy Officer for Polaris Strategic Insights, and he joins us on the Bill Kelly Show to talk about the, the numbers. Dan, always a pleasure. Thanks so much for the time today. Happy to be here, yeah. It, it, the, the numbers that Sandy Salerno just talked about are, are concerning. You know, 83% think we're already in a recession. Now, I know, as we've talked about in the past, you know, the definition of an interception, uh, a, a recession is is two quarters of negative growth. That means nothing to people. They're basically saying, my situation here, it's costing me an arm and a leg to buy chicken at the grocery store, my gas tank to get filled up, I've got to go get a loan at the bank. I mean, there, there's a lot of negativity here, and, I, and people are feeling pretty glum these days. Yeah, I think that's that's a, a good point. Uh, you know, there's an economist definition for these things uh, that all the experts with PhDs will come up with. But when Canadians look okay. at the economy, they just kind of have a gut feel. Uh, and right now, they feel like things aren't going very good for them. Um, and they feel like, uh, as you said, things are expensive. They're not balancing the books at the end of the month. You've got half of Canadians who think their household income is not going to keep up with the cost of living next year. And you put that all together and people kind of say, uh, recession for the label as they put on it. But uh, I think the summary here is really this is the most pessimistic Canadians have been about the economy since uh, 2008, 2009. And we've been doing this survey at Polera for 28 years. And this is one of the most uh, really just negative, gloomy outlooks that we've seen over the uh, 28 years that this poll has been uh, happening. Well, one of the most telling aspects of, of the numbers that you released here is uh, responses that were, well, as you say, pretty glum when they looked at this here. 52% said they were worried about their economic situation, and a further 29%, or 33% rather, said they were upset by this. And that, that there's, there's that 85% that we were just talking about that think this is going to be a pretty crappy year for them personally or their family situation, uh, which is, is doesn't bode well, I suppose, because we're looking for some positive signs uh, for economic recovery and, and most Canadians don't think it's going to come as a matter of fact they seem to think it's going to get worse yeah I mean uh, you know as, as Sandy mentioned in the report there we've got um, 83 percent who think we're in a recession right now and you know that's one thing but then we ask is it going to get better or worse next year and you've only got 14 percent who say it's going to get better next year you've got over half of Canadians 56 percent who say it's going to get worse next year so they already kind of feel like things aren't going great for them uh, and then 2023, they're expecting it to get even worse. So uh, obviously not a very positive, up, up, uh, optimistic outlook there for the uh, the public. I want to, you know, to try to get some some context into this. I'm wondering if one of the contributing factors to, to the negativity and, and the feelings of, of the people that responded to the poll here is I don't think too many experts, quote unquote, told us this was coming. You know, we thought, okay, when they start easing restrictions to the pandemic and things start opening up again, uh, we'll start to thrive. Things are going to be fine. And, and, you know, we'll get back on our feet you know, within a couple of months. And nobody talked about gasoline prices skyrocketing or the cost of, of food skyrocketing to the way that it did. I think it caught a lot of people off guard. Yeah, I think it's you know it's all about expectations when it comes yeah. to these types of economic things. If it's worse this year than last year, people notice it a lot more than if it's kind of a gradual um, increase over time. And I think you're you're right on. And when it comes to that kind of 
post-COVID mentality that's out there. Everyone made sacrifices for a year or two. And I think there was kind of an understanding that, okay, we're making these sacrifices now, but the post-COVID world is going to be a real fun time. You know, we're going to be able to get out and see people again and everything's going to be great. And there was that kind of hope, I think, that, you know, this this year is going to suck, 2020 is going to suck, 2021 is going to suck, but 2022 is going to be really great. And, you know, there wasn't that great VE Day moment. There wasn't this great celebration. Uh, and, you know, people are just kind of moving from one health crisis into an economic crisis from it. And I think that has really worn people down, which is why, again, when we ask those emotional questions, you know, how are you feeling about your personal finances? It is words like, you know, worried, upset, sad, things that people are very, you know, not necessarily even angry, but just sort of feeling pretty, pretty bummed out that, you know, things have not kind of panned out the way they hoped they would uh, over the last couple of years. And, and maybe the feeling is, as I've talked with our listeners about this over the last little while, and, and even economists, I think, are starting to come around to this, a lot of the, the contributing factors that put us in the circumstance that we're in right now are beyond the, the control of most of us. Uh, you know, Sadly, the war in Ukraine is, is going to continue to rage on. That's going to have an impact on gasoline prices. Uh, supply chain stuff that we thought was going to be fixed by now it seems to be getting worse. Uh, and my wife's just telling me it's hard to find hamburger in some stores right now. You know, the cost of what they do have is going up. And it's it's just one of these situations that where we're, I think we're throwing our hands up and saying, what am I supposed to do here? Yeah, I think the things that are impacting people are things that affect everybody in this situation. You know, sometimes when you have a bad economic situation, it is because the job market is soft. And, you know, for the people who are in precarious work, that is obviously a horrible situation for them to be in. But even when the job market is soft, you've got most Canadians who probably are still feeling pretty secure in the way they are. Um, But this isn't this isn't a jobs driven uh, economic malaise out there. It's very much inflation driven. And, you know, everybody's got to buy food at the grocery store. Uh, And if you're not uh, stressed out about the cost of uh, chicken, then you're stressed out about uh, trying to buy your first home or filling up your tank to drive into work every week or something else. And, you know, I think, um, you know, these are factors, inflationary pressures that affect everybody. Um, so everybody's feeling it, which is, again, why we see these widespread numbers like over 80% of people who say we're in a recession because it's something that everybody's feeling. It's not just one sector. It's not just one type of Canadian who's being impacted by this economic situation. It's something that everybody is uh, in one way or another being affected by. Well, what I love about the uh, the surveys that you guys do is you hold a mirror up to, it, to the Canadian public and uh, give it a pretty good idea as to where we are and how we're feeling about things. And it's always insightful when we uh, we get this information from you. Dan, as always, thank you so much for this uh, and enjoying the conversation today. Have a great weekend. We'll talk again soon. Yeah, you too, Anita. Take care. Dan Arnold uh, from Polara Strategic Insights. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. It's been quite a week for uh, Premier Doug Ford. Uh, and maybe some would suggest for all the wrong reasons. Uh, by the way, the premier was in Hamilton yesterday at a, uh, a bakery and talked. Uh, was there to celebrate the huge uh, influx of, of uh, investment and expansion for the uh, the business there. Uh, but when he got around to talking to the media, uh, they didn't want to talk about bread. They wanted to talk about some of the government's actions or inactions, I guess, as the uh, the case might be. And uh, the, the premier was asked uh, about a couple of things that are going on here. He says his government has been transparent right from the beginning about its decision to remove 7,400 acres from the Greenbelt and added that land elsewhere. And he's also defending the province's move to overrules Hamilton's decision to freeze the urban boundary. Remember that issue? Here's what the Premier had to say. And we have to create the climate for, for companies to come here and uh, invest and, and build rentals. I was mentioning to the mayor, speaking to some of the investment bankers and everything, uh, we saw the pens drop immediately on rentals which is not a good thing. We need rentals. So we have to make it attractive uh, for them to, to build and right across the, the province here. 
Joining us to talk about uh, the week in Queen's Park is uh, John Best. John, of course, is the publisher of the Bay Observer. Uh, John, always a pleasure. Thanks so much for being with us today. Great to be with you, Bill. John, notwithstanding the fact that he was in town to make a, a financial announcement, an investment announcement, uh, the, the Premier's been playing defense most of the week, hasn't he? He has. Um, and I, I, I followed that uh, announcement yesterday, and it was, uh, you know, it was supposed to be like he brought half the cabinet with him. There, there were, I think he had four ministers there, plus Donna Skelly. Um, so, you know, for, for a, what amounted to a million and a half dollars, as far as the province is concerned, uh, uh, the bakery is, is uh, it's actually a $15 million project. But it, it was interesting because, you know, you got the, all these cabinet ministers there, good news uh, announcement. And the thing kicks off with uh, the mayor um, uh, acknowledging, uh, you know, and, and speaking about the terrible uh, accident that had happened the day before, um, you know, so it, it, it was just a, a kind of a strange day. And then it kind of went from there to uh, all the questions about uh, uh, Bill 124. Apparently, there was a paper released that, that said that the, the freezing of wages for hospital workers was uh, one of the reasons uh, during the pandemic that we were losing so many nurses. Why you would even need a consultant to figure that one out, I don't know. But it was it was kind of an odd day uh, for him. And uh, he certainly took some incoming on the uh, on the boundary freezing issue. Uh, but the clip that you just played, I think, was interesting because he was talking about speaking to investment bankers and he was i think what he was suggesting is that uh they uh were showing a lack of interest in any kind of rental property and you know we're in a situation now where people can't afford to buy houses so rental is the only option and and it sounded to me like he was trying to you know sort of boost up the the rental side of this housing equation that's that was kind of the takeaway i took from that yeah, it, it's interesting, and and tied to tie it into his uh, his justification, I guess, for expanding into the green belt too, uh, which is, by the way, kind of following a pattern. I mean, you know, the the expose, of course, that uh, Sylvia Jones and the premier both had information about uh, what they were doing with Bill One Twenty Four was actually hurting uh, the circumstance, not helping it. Uh, they seem to ignore that, just like they ignored the advice from his own uh, housing uh, committee about affordable housing that said, "Don't go into the green belt." So. Uh, it's it's kind of like uh, you know do as I do not as I say uh, or the other way around I'm not sure how he's even rationalizing it these days, uh, but, but there's a lot of questions being asked right now about the flip flop on Greenbelt and about what's happening right now uh, in with that ministry and uh, as I say when it when you know if if what's that old phrase if you're explaining you're losing uh, now this is not an election campaign he's got three more years before he has to worry about anything like that but there's a lot of people scratching their heads and saying just where is this guy going now well uh the only thing i would say uh to that is i i don't think this expansion into the green belt was as big a surprise it seems to me there was some discussion about it before the election Certainly yeah. was we certainly knew that the the government was going to be, get aggressive in intervening on things like uh, like we were explicitly almost told here in Hamilton that that the boundary freeze was probably going to get canceled. There there were some you know during that campaign um, you know he was uh, I forget what the sign was he had on his podium but it was uh, something about getting everything done and you know I don't think anybody's jaw hit the floor when when he. Um, 
did the greenbelt uh, reversal. Having said that, it's it's highly unpopular with uh, the you know the people that are concerned about the green belt, uh, and what are, you know the issue really comes down to is uh, whether there is in fact enough room within the city boundaries, which uh, the green belt uh, supporters insist that we have enough room inside the boundary. I I haven't seen you know we've seen the the city of Hamilton staff when they were confronted knowing full well that the will of council was going to be to uh, freeze the boundary, they, they came up with, with a scenario that, that showed how it could be done. Um, but, you know, uh, what that looks like on the ground when you actually start seeing uh, uh, dwellings pop up in driveways and uh, backyard tool sheds and, you know, uh, what those conversions would actually look like and how the public would react, until we actually see some of this stuff, it's it's hard to know, you know, exactly what the public mood is. Well, exactly. And, you know, we've heard loud voices. And you and I talked about this last year when this whole discussion about urban boundary in the Hamilton area was ongoing. And there was a pretty strong, as you wrote about in the Observer, a pretty strong uh, online move, a social media move to try to get people to, to sign petitions and send letters uh, uh, not to do this and not to do this. And, you know, they characterized it as an overwhelming majority of the population uh, that were on side with uh, with not uh, expanding the urban boundary. Uh, some people question the, the validity of the survey itself, but the fact is, is uh, the government simply said it wasn't going to happen. I think what bothered people, John, about the the, the, the backtrack on, on Greenbelt uh, was, and I think it was the Narwhal that actually did account, and I think it was 38 times the Premier and the Municipal Affairs Minister said, we're not going to do this, we're not going to do this, and then they turned around and did it. Uh, it looks, when you when you see those clips being played, uh, it looks really bad, uh, when, you know, when the Premier's uh, not, not only saying he's not going to do it, but he's so emphatic uh, about it. So, you know, it's like anything else. You, uh, We're seeing it with our own city council here. You, you think you've got uh, all the answers when you're running for election. You get in and you start uh, seeing the reality. And uh, I suppose, the, 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 you know, in a 30,000-foot level, you look at it and say, do we want politicians who never change their mind no matter what information they're confronted with? or or not and uh, you know that's always the issue and you know we in the media i think have to take some responsibility we we develop the word flip-flop when in fact it may simply be uh, the kind of stuff we do in our households every day which is adjusting for reality mm -hmm. well and and if that's the case and if that's the argument then you know i i think it's a valid question to say okay what new information do you have that changed your mind and and that way you can have that discussion uh but it seems as if uh, you know, he he changed his mind because of some commitment he had made to some developers. That's what some people are insinuating, uh, and we don't know that not to be true. Now, and to that point, now we've just found out yesterday the uh, three opposition leaders have all joined forces to to try to get the auditor general to uh, investigate this, and and uh, good for them. Uh, but as I mentioned on my commentary earlier this morning, uh, nothing will come of that. It's it's uh, you know. The auditor general can write a damning report if, if, in fact, she finds information that would substantiate that. But nobody's going to get fired. Uh, nobody's going to get fined. This, this is a government policy, and in all likelihood, it's going to go through. I agree. And, and I think the other thing that, that you can take from that, that, that clip from Ford yesterday where he was talking to investment bankers, I, I think the thing that we kind of forget here is that the, the housing industry, probably 95% of the housing industry is controlled by the private sector. Uh, 
the money comes from the private sector. The builders, uh, you know, they invest in the land. Uh, they develop it down the road. Uh, the only part of housing that that is um, under the control of government is public housing, which is a tiny, tiny percentage of the overall issue. So when he's talking about meeting with investment bankers, I, I think that suggests that he's he's trying to plug into the people that actually make the system work we can we can zone things and uh we can throw up various uh, roadblocks or or encouragements but at the end of the day we're, we're we're trying to regulate something that is really not regulated other than uh through zoning uh, you exactly. know it, it's uh it's interesting to see the you know the challenge of of trying to solve a, a, a housing issue that is largely in not in government hands uh, and by the way, just as a, a quick PS to to our discussion about the investigation or an AG investigation, uh, there has been some talk about the OPP getting involved in the investigation. They haven't made a commitment to it yet. If 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 there's something illegal, that changes the the ball game altogether. Uh, but we're not even down that road yet. It's just some people would like to see something happen here. I got to ask you. I got yes. a few minutes left here, John. Uh, when Doug Ford first got elected in his first term when he became premier. Uh, he spent, uh, by most accounts, about $30 million of taxpayer money to fight the carbon tax, the, the federal carbon tax, uh, and said it was an unfair tax. We know all the arguments. And he went to court and lost and went to the and appealed that and lost that as well. Well, now, in 2023, the Ontario government uh, is going to start generating revenue from carbon taxing. So I, I don't want to go into the term flip-flop once again, but it's a different perspective on this. Uh, and a substantial amount of money is going to be uh, heading to the province because of this. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I, I was looking at that, and and uh, I, I think what might have changed his mind, or, or at least uh, partly changed his mind, was when he realized that. Uh, I'll give you an example. We have a great local example here, where um, the the provincial government is going to give uh, ArcelorMittal five hundred million dollars to uh, ultimately shut down the blast furnace and the coke ovens. And that money is going to come out of this carbon tax. So I, I think uh, when it when it started when he started to realize that heavy industry uh, was actually interested in uh, in reducing their carbon footprint if they could get some support from government, uh, then the question is uh, where's the money going to come from? Uh, and uh, uh, what what a better idea than than to use the carbon tax money? that these industries and, and that we're all paying uh, to subsidize an effort to reduce carbon footprint. So I, I think when it became, you know, I think he relates to business, big business. I think that's where his head is at. And uh, when when he saw a pathway where where the, the carbon tax would actually be welcomed by business, it, I think that's where the switch came. Well, and that's not the first time this has happened either. I mean, I, I, one of the other things that uh, the newly minted Doug Ford did when he became premier was took out all the charging stations for electronic vehicles because he didn't think anything was going to ever happen to that. Uh, but when he saw industry get involved in the EVs and start pushing it, he was right on side. He was just, you know, and, and has, has committed his government to this. And, and, and by the way, I don't see anything wrong with that. You know, the old classic line from Winston Churchill, those who don't change, don't change anything. And that's fine because that things have changed. And he, he's noticed that. And uh, it's, it's interesting to see. And I, I, I just found it ironic. It looks as if, you know, the premier is going to become a, now a strong advocate for the carbon tax because it, it's going to be a funding source for something that he'd like to see happen here in Ontario vis-a-vis uh, -vis industry. 
Well, it's interesting because when DeFasco shuts down their blast furnace and their coke ovens, they'll, they'll start paying less into the fund. But <laughs> that's going to be a, a few years down the road. Uh, so, but yeah, I think that's a great use of of the carbon tax money, uh, a significant use uh, because that 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 has an impact on the on the airshed of the entire province when when you uh, affect a large steel mill like that. Have they been open and upfront about exactly how they're going to use this money? I mean, you've given them some suggestions with the Arsenal Middle situation here, uh, but I know the Ontario Chamber of Commerce has been hounding the, the, the provincial government for the last little while, saying, "What are you going to do with this money? Where's it going to go?" Uh, and, and I'm sure that you know there, there's probably 500 different people and or organizations that would love to give them some input as to where they'd like to see the cash go. But I, I haven't seen a game plan yet. Have you? No, I haven't. Uh, certainly not a program yet. Uh, the the uh, Arcelor deal is is a one off, but it is five hundred million dollars, and that's more money than than the tax will generate in the first couple of years. So you might say the first two years where they're kind of spoken for, um, but it's uh, you know I think in year five they get up around four hundred million. Uh, so it's a significant down payment on uh, that's coming here to Hamilton. Uh, on that uh, province-wide program. And there's some provincial uh, funding programs, of course, that are assisting in that as well. John, always a pleasure. Uh, great to have you back in the program. Uh, uh, belated Happy New Year to you, and I uh, look forward to our conversation next week. You too, Bill. Nice to be with you. John Best, of course, the publisher of the Bay Observer. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Focus on, on what's going on south of the border right now, and and. It's it's a rather bizarre week uh, in the United States, especially down in the U.S. Capitol. Uh, the, the week started off, I guess, relatively okay for President Biden. Uh, he had the the meeting with the three amigos uh, down in Mexico City uh, and uh, met individually, of course, with the Mexican president and, of course, with uh, Prime Minister Trudeau. And uh, they hashed out some some things that I think were very positive. Uh, the agreement uh, that Canada was actually going to finance and pay for one of the missile defense systems that's going over to Ukraine. Uh, that's a box you can check. That's good. That was a good news and a very positive aspect of this. Uh, they had some other discussions about trade and, and supply chains and things of this nature. So anyway, not a bad meeting uh, with all the leaders and uh, some pretty positive vibe, I guess, coming out of that is the president made it back to uh, to Washington uh, until the story broke that uh, it seems as if uh, some of these uh, documents, these uh, confidential documents, some of these top secret documents, they are the same ones that uh, they found reams and reams of at uh, Donald Trump's Mar-a-Lago residence. Uh, Well, apparently they found some of those confidential documents in Joe Biden's office. Uh, This is his home office uh, the first part of the week. Uh, And then just yesterday, uh, it was announced that there were other documents, similar uh, documents that were found uh, in his home in Delaware. Well, as a result, uh, well, the... Department of Justice has said to spring into action uh, because of this news. Uh, now U.S. Attorney General uh, Merritt Garland has announced an appointment of another special counsel to investigate the Joe Biden mishandling of classified documents. This is the second, of course, independent investigation into the same matter. Uh, Global's Reggie Cicchini has been following the story. Here's his report. Just days after it was revealed that top-secret documents were discovered in a private office used by Joe Biden before his time in the Oval Office, two more instances of mishandling were made public. And following an initial review, the Attorney General has now put an independent set of eyes on the matter. It was in the public interest to appoint a special counsel. Documents were also recovered from Biden's Delaware home in December and again on Thursday morning. 
A separate special prosecutor is already investigating former President Trump's handling of classified information. The Biden team says that it has handed over all documents to either National Archives or the Justice Department, but it remains unclear who brought documents bearing classified markings to these locations. Congress has asked the Pentagon to determine if national security has been compromised. Reggie Chikini, Global News, Washington. Uh, it gets curiouser and curiouser, doesn't it? And and this, of course, is all within the, the shadow of, of the, the Donald Trump Mar-a-Lago incident, uh, which is still being adjudicated, I guess. And, uh, you know, the special prosecutor there uh, is looking into things. And it seemed at one point uh, as if there there may have been a, a, a crossing point where charges might actually be laid by the special prosecutor. But this just kind of throws smoke all over it. And, and there's been political reaction to it, too. Notwithstanding that there are differences between these two. The, the Trump situation, the documents that they found in Mar-a-Lago, there, apparently there are 300-plus uh, documents that were found. The Trump simply said, they're mine. You're not getting them back. Uh, and, of course, there was a resistance. The FBI finally had to raid the place to find them. Uh, we're told that uh, the Biden situation here, it's about 12 documents. Uh, we don't know what they are, what they pertain to, or anything else. Uh, but the difference in numbers, I, co- I suppose, is, is well, it's noteworthy to be sure. But as you might expect, it's become a political football now, especially with the Republicans finally, by the way, getting a name of a speaker, uh, but jumping all over the things. Jim Jordan, who's been a, a thorn in the side of, of well, I was going to say democracy in general, uh, but uh, the, first of all, the impeachment hearings against Trump, and certainly uh, more recently with uh, some of the other rather acrimonious uh, things that he has done as a politician, including the investigation until uh, January 6th from a couple of years ago, too, which he uh, tried his best to block, first of all, uh, and then, of course, refused to testify at. But anyway, he's all over this right now, too, saying, see, see, they're just as bad as, as we are, and, and which I find rather interesting, too, because he's, first of all, denying that Trump has done anything wrong, but at the same time, uh, Biden, who's had a much less egregious uh you know, situation here, he wants to jump all over. And they're making it a political football. Just as we had predicted, of course, now that the Republicans have got control of the House of Representatives, uh, they basically want to have a hearing into this. They want to explore this. They don't just want a special prosecutor. Uh, They want to look into this. They want to have hearings into this. Uh, They've already made uh, overtures that they want to uh, impeach Biden and impeach Kamala Harris and anybody else that can walk down the hall and find, they want to impeach them too. So this is this is a reckoning as far as the Republicans are concerned. And now this is really just an opportunity here that the, these discoveries of, of the documentation in Biden's residence in his office, uh, when he was not in public office, by the way, uh, have just emboldened the Republicans even more. And uh, it's it's going to get ugly. Well, it's already ugly, but it's going to get uglier uh, because of the pl- politics of this this and and what they're going to try to make out of this. Uh, The special prosecutor that uh, Merritt Garland, the attorney general, has appointed here uh, is actually a Republican, uh, former principal counsel uh, for uh, Rosenstein. And you may remember uh, Rosenstein, of course, uh, was one of the people from the Republican administration, the Trump administration that oversaw the Mueller investigation. Uh, So they're anticipating that, well, maybe we can take some of the political sting out of this. Uh, by putting a Republican as a special counsel in this particular situation. Uh, we're told it's, a, 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 by the way, a special counsel uh, with a, a stellar uh, legal uh, 
opinion on uh, many, many issues and uh, considered to be right down the middle. Not, not even though he may be in a Republican administration or was in a Republican administration, uh, he's, he says first and foremost he's a lawyer and, and a prosecutor and, uh, and he doesn't let the politics get into it. So, And we don't know how long this is going to take, uh, just how long the, the investigation may take and where it's going to lead and uh, whether or not charges should actually be laid in the situation. Uh, but it, you know now that, uh, that the, the documents have been found, uh, at one point anyway, uh, in Biden's house and, and in his office. Uh, the comparison is always going to be there now uh, between what's happening with the Biden case and what's happening with the Trump case, even though there, there are only a very, very few uh, similarities between the two. But this is what politics has, has, has really degenerated into, isn't it? It's, it's simply now become a game of, of you know, gotcha. And uh, who can we get next and who can we, you know, pin something on next? Uh, so we, which is the timing of this, of course, is, is just terrible because of that, uh, because the president uh, is, is trying to, to shed himself of, of some of the uh, preconceived notions people had about him. I mean, he's had some, some victories in the last little while. We mentioned the Three Amigos Summit. Uh, but even at home, uh, some of the legislation and some of the economic incentives that he's passed have started to have impacts on this. And uh, it seems as if uh, those woeful uh, public hearings and, and, and public opinion polls that uh, have been basically saying that Americans are just not trusting of Joe Biden seem to be shifting. It's, it's not where they want it to be by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, but they seem to have, uh, have been able, anyway, to impart this message that maybe things are going a lot better than we thought they were going to, and maybe there's some reason for optimism here. But something like this is, is something that just kind of deflates that optimism, and we're not just sure what kind of an impact it's going to have. And this is all, of course, in the backdrop that uh, you know he's into the second half of his, his four-year mandate, and uh, the, as We've mentioned on the program when we've talked with Reggie Cicchini from Washington and others, uh, observers, of course, on the U.S. political system, that for all intents and purposes, the uh, the campaigning for the 2024 election has already started, especially on the Republican side, where Donald Trump has already declared himself to be a candidate again. Uh, the Florida governor, Ron DeSantis, uh, is kicking the tires, and uh, some people not sure exactly why he hasn't uh, made a definitive announcement one way or another on that. Uh, but it's it's become a political quagmire right now, uh, which is the last thing they want to see. Get some perspective on this. We're uh, so pleased to welcome back to the program uh, Brian J. Karam. Brian, of course, is a political analyst for CNN, a White House reporter, columnist for Salon.com, and the Washington Diplomat, and host of a fabulous uh, uh, blog and and. Uh, podcast. It's called Just Ask the Question. Uh, Always great insight into the American political scene. And by the way, uh, the book that we talked about uh, that he put out last year, uh, still uh, doing well and a a very, very good read, especially in light of what's been going on in Washington the last uh, little while. The book is called Free the Press, the Death of American Journalism and How to Revive It. Uh, Brian, welcome back to the program. It's good to talk with you again. Good to talk to you. How are you doing? I'm doing fine. I'm doing better than Joe Biden, I guess, uh, these days. Uh, I was just mentioning before he had joined us, he seemed to have scored some points during the Three Amigos meeting in, in uh, Mexico City. You know, a couple of things that he went down there for, he got he got Canada to come on side and pay for one of those missile defense systems for Ukraine. So I'm sure he's feeling pretty good about himself as he flew back to Washington. And then, bang, this thing hits. What, what have you heard? Well, I, I <laughs> what I've heard is what everyone else has heard, including what we heard in the press briefing room. 
And once again, you, you know, it, the Democrats are great at snatching defeat out of the jaws of victory. <laughs> There's simply no way to to uh, um, to describe it any other way. The fact of the matter is, is Joe Biden has a problem. Uh, he would have been better to come out. I'm glad he's being investigated. It, it needs to be investigated. I don't think there's anything nefarious there, but it, the problem needs to be cleaned up. And I, I don't think it's a cool idea to have classified material in, in your garage next to your, you know, uh, next to your Corvette. <laughs> Sorry, but it's uh, I, I don't think the Democrats understand how bad this is going to go for for Joe. It's going to give the Republicans all the impetus they need to uh, gin up uh, a lot of hearings in in the House, grind government to a halt for the next two years with a threat of impeachment, no doubt, with an investigation of Hunter Biden's laptop, and ultimately by allowing uh, Donald Trump to get away with real criminal behavior because they're all going to play the, you know, it's all the same. Uh, They're going to say it's just equal. And so, you know, if he gets away with it, then uh, Trump should get away with it. It, It's a a disaster politically. Well, there's some people that are pretty happy about that. I mean, Jim Jordan's been running around. It's Christmas all over again for him, isn't it? Well, Jim Jordan's a moron of biblical proportions. Yeah, I mean, he's literally too stupid to insult. He's all about him. And politicians like Jordan are very common in Congress, particularly in the Republican Party. But, of course, they hold, you know, they don't hold, they haven't cornered the market on it. The Democrats have their morons, too. But Jordan, in charge of the Judiciary Committee, is one of the people who's going to keep government tied up for the next two years in hearings. And it's going to be about uh, Hunter Biden's laptop. It's going to be about President Biden. And it's going to be about a lot of other things, and the American people will not get uh, the government that they need. And the, uh, the real threat to the, the country is that in the next two years, we could default on our debt. They could shut down government, and it's, uh, w- with uh, and, and no omnibus bills are going to get passed. So it's, uh, it's, we're staring into the abyss once again, um, and it's, it's a sad state of affairs for the United States. Well, and and it's right on the uh, the tail, of course, of, of what happened, uh, you know, the uh, the fiasco of trying to choose a speaker, which you know Kevin McCarthy finally won on the what it was the fifteenth ballot, I guess it was. But as I was saying to my listeners earlier in the week, though, uh, Brian, uh, every time you know there was another ballot, of course, he had to be renominated, and somebody else would stand up there from the Republican caucus. Uh, and and basically talk for about thirty seconds about about McCarthy and the rest of the time about Republican doctrine, uh, and it kind of reminded us, didn't it, about well some of the the agenda that these guys have uh, when it comes to uh, to what is going to be happening or not happening, I guess, in the House in the next little while. And uh, you know, when you say, okay, what what are your goals? The goal seems to be to take down Joe Biden. That, that's the front and center for most of them. Well, more than that, their goal seems to be to take down the whole government. Um, they're all they're zealous with and the zeal is around uh their being in charge without any real uh type of agenda other than holding on to power and screwing over the american people and being beholden to those that put them in office and it's you know i i've said it i can't tell you the number of times i've said this but it's true in the united states we have two political parties one has no heart and one has no head and we're being governed by headless, heartless people, and it's not going to change unless we are better educated and get involved in government more. 
and 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 the the of course the revelation about the Biden and the documents, of course, comes at the worst possible time because of that. Uh, because the Republicans, as you say, are simply going to point and say, "See, he's he's doing everything too." So what's the big deal about Trump? Uh, the the timing stinks on this. Plus, the other element that I know uh, a number of people have been asking over the last forty eight hours too, Brian, is uh, if they knew about this in November, why did they wait until you know this late in, into January to even talk about this? Well, because it's politically expedient to do so now. That it it benefits them to do Republicans to talk about it now. That's when everything in Washington, D.C., if you haven't figured it out by now, is is manufactured. And uh, there's a cynicism in this uh, city that is both uh, surprising and disgusting. And, and, you know, with the simple fact matter being that um, the American public is not being provided government service that we vote people in office to give us. And we complete, you know, we're so proud of the fact that we broke away from the monarchy and the British and it's ruled by the people, but we've installed the people that rule over us with power that the monarchy didn't have after the Reformation. So it's, it's not like we've done better for ourselves. It's in fact, uh, at this point in time, the American democracy, what a wonderful ideal to achieve. And we're so far from it. Well, uh, it's a bit of a bad week for Biden, and it's uh, going to be interesting to see what the special prosecutor in this particular case does and uh, how long this investigation is going to take and the impact it's going to have. Brian, always great to get your perspective, my friend. Uh, good luck and all the best in 2023, and hopefully we can talk again soon. Oh, yeah. Well, I'll be in Sacramento to talk about freeing the press. It's in its fourth printing, and we'll be there to Excellent. talk about the problems of the press in about two weeks, and it'll be either be the first of many or the first of one, depending on how many people I anger with it. <laughs> okay. Brian, good luck with that. Uh, and keep doing what you're doing. Brian Karam, uh, political analyst with CNN, and of course the author of that book that uh, he was just talking about called uh, Free the Press, The Death of American Journalism and How to Revive It. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review. For most of us, crime is something we see on the news. We never think it could happen to us until it does. Loved ones are gone, and for the survivors, the scars will never heal. I'm Nancy Hickst, a senior crime reporter for Global News. And on this season of Crime Beat, I'll take you inside some of the most serious crime stories I've covered. Season six of Crime Beat is available now on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, and all podcast platforms.